Howdy everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Based on History podcast and the segment Things John Got Wrong. And this will be dealing with the things I got wrong in the American Sniper episode. And not to toot my own horn, but I re-listened to it again a couple times and I didn't really hear or find anything that I got really wrong that's really worth kind of talking about or addressing in in that much of a capacity. So we're not really going to do a Things John Got Wrong segment here, but one thing I just kind of wanted to talk about is if you're listening to the podcast and you really enjoy it and you have the ability and you want to, and you're thinking about, you know, advertising your business or anything that you're doing on podcasts, it's a great platform to advertise with. And if you're interested in sponsoring or advertising with the Based on History podcast, you can contact me on my Instagram page, which is at Based on History. And I'd love to talk and discuss potential opportunities with you and the podcast as well. So if not, just enjoy the episode and keep listening and spreading the word. That's all I really ask out of anybody who enjoys the podcast is just to tell tell as many people as possible about the podcast. So without further ado, we'll dive into the episode itself. This episode is brought to you by Alexis Night Photography. Alexis is an award-winning lifestyle, brand, and wedding photographer based in the Cotswolds, England, specializing in headshots, family shoots, and event photography. Alexis has over 20 years experience. You can find her work and contact her for all your photography needs at alexisknight.co.uk. That's alexis, K-N-I-G-H-T dot C-O dot U-K. We are also brought to you by Design Weaver Textiles. Based in the heart of the Cotswolds, Philippa Weaver of Design Weaver Textiles is a hand-tufted rug designer and maker with a passion for British craftsmanship. With 20 years of experience designing carpet for high-end hospitality, she is uniquely suited to bring a fully bespoke design and make service to you, taking care at each stage to provide a beautiful and truly unique work of art to your interior landscape. You can find her on Instagram at Design Weaver Techs. Again, that's at Design Weaver Techs. We are also brought to you by Vanguard Cattle. Vanguard is a small, family-owned beef operation located in the heart of Texas. Their primary focus is on registered Santa Gertrudis cattle for superior genetics, bull and female replacement for commercial cattlemen and meat production. Vanguard's family roots date back to the days prior to the Republic of Texas. They take much pride in offering strong, sound genetics and beef to other Texas families. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook at at Vanguard underscore cattle or via email at vanguardcattle at gmail.com. Once again, that's at Vanguard underscore cattle or via email at vanguardcattle at gmail.com. You're listening to the Based on History podcast. All units, Irene. I say again, Irene. And we're going to kick him in the ass. We're going to kick the hell out of him all the time, and we're going to go through him like crap through a goose. You tell him I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! That they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Are you not entertained? 
Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Based on History podcast. I'm your host, John Nunnick. Joining me, as always, is my wife, Alexis. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the film 300, going over some of the historical facts, and then diving into the movie and seeing the things that they got right and the things that we all know they got wrong. And we'll talk a little bit about the movie like we usually do, and then we'll dive in and uh, look at some of the uh, actual historical events. So, first question as always, Alexis, your thoughts on the movie? We have both seen this one before. I remember when it came out, but watch, I mean, it's been a long time since I've, since I've watched it. What are some of your initial thoughts watching it again? Mm, um, well, I do, I remember it quite vividly from when I watched it the first time, or at least I remember kind of its cinematic kind of, um, what's the word? Not influence. Like the visual? The visuals, that's what really stood in my, stood out in my memory. Maybe, and obviously it's pretty much one battle. So, so it was clear, that, that was pretty clear that that was kind of what had happened, but I couldn't really remember what was leading up to it or if there was kind of the, speci- the, the specifics of it. Yeah. Um, so your, your mini helped me understand yeah. the history. Just a reminder. If you haven't listened to the Base on History mini Ionian Revolt, go do that now. It gives you a little bit of historical context mm-hmm. leading up to the movie 300. So, yes, continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I had I had a good idea as to what was going on and why this time around. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, even like, I, I guess maybe this is the second or the third time that I've watched it. Um, and I obviously loved it a lot when I first watched it because I bought the DVD. Yeah. Yeah, we own it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is how we watched it last night. Um, but yeah, and I just thought that visually it was it was really great. I still like, how, how long ago was it first made? Yeah, so okay. it came out in 2006. So I would have been... What's that? Yeah, like a sophomore what? in high school. Just under twenty years ago. Yeah, so fifteen. Yeah, fifteen or sixteen years old. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just I thought like the way that they filmed it, like the battle scenes, how they'd slow go into slow mo and then they'd speed up. That was really cool. It's visually um, a very impressive movie. Yeah, and all the blood and the kind of dramatic blood and gore that come out everywhere, and how grainy and gritty it is, and all of the kind of really amplified stab noises and all of that was super cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember when it came out. It was the first movie like this it, mm-hmm. that I really remember. I, you know, I, Sin City had come out before. I had it. I think. I'm not exactly sure what year Sin City came out, but it, it had to have been around the same time. But even yeah, I remember watching both of those. I can't remember which one was the first, but I right. remember being like, wow, I've never seen anything like this yeah. before. Sin City has a much more comic booky feel mm-hmm. to it, in my opinion, although they're both based they're off of similar, Frank Miller graf- graphic novels. But it was a, the first movie that kind of was 99% CGI. Everything in it is almost completely... There, there's very little real structures in the movie the rest of it's just all cgi okay 
Yeah, I was going to ask that about the location. Was that all kind of studio, pretty much? Yeah, it's all in a studio. Yeah. It's all in, like, there's a few times where they're standing on, like, boulders. But when you look at the production uh, set p- uh, pictures, mm-hmm. the boulders are all covered in, like, blue or green. Oh, right. So even, even the things that they're actually yeah, interacting... I was wondering when I was watching it, I was thinking, I wonder if this is all studio, but... There were a couple scenes when they were stood on boulders and you could see the ocean behind that I thought, well, maybe that could be really yeah, no, that, that's on all, the coast. No, they're, yeah, th- okay. that's not what the coast looks like. And we'll talk about we'll talk about that when we kind of get to when they arrive mm-hmm. at Thermopylae. Um, but yeah, I liked I liked all the actors. There was nobody that like stood out that I was um, that I was kind of not into at all. I thought they were all pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's by no means would I describe it as like a acting movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of a, <laughs> a strange way to say it, but like, it's not, the movie is not really geared towards the acting. It's more geared towards the action and the visuals. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that everyone who acted in it did a good job because mm-hmm. if you were a bad actor, it would take you out of it, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not, you know, no one's winning the Academy Award for Best Actor or Actress in the movie 300. You know, so they're, it's more about the battle and the visuals and the technological yes. achievements that, that they did. But that being said, this is the first movie that I really remember Gerard Butler being the star in. He had, had some smaller roles and things like that. I remember him in the Dragon movie Reign of Fire with Christian Bale and Matthew McConaughey. I don't think I've seen that. Oh, well, we need to watch. It's not based on history, so we won't <laughs> we won't <laughs> cover it on the podcast, but it's I actually think it's an underrated kind of futuristic dragon movie. Okay. But um, this was the first time that I remember Gerard Butler being like the number one big guy and kind of launching his career to that next that next level and it's got a whole bunch of other characters that you recognize you know it's got um you know lena hetty from game of thrones who plays mm-hmm. cersei it's got michael fassbender in it kind of mm-hmm. right on the cusp of when he i be- think he was my favorite character apart from leonidas Jared yeah Butler. he's he's a cool spartan. he was my favorite yeah he's a cool spartan it's got i can't remember his name but the guy who plays faramir mm-hmm. in lord of the rings yeah the actor who played xerxes his name was rodrigo santoro He's in Westworld, and he's he he looks nothing, nothing, nothing like how he is. I can't in remember the, which I can't remember which one he is. Xerxes is the Persian king. Oh, the bald, the oh, bald guy with right. all the things. Yeah, I have to see. I have to see what he looks so, like in real life. I have a look. He he's heavily, heavily CGI'd. Right. Yeah. But he's huge. He's a giant. Yeah. He's bald. He's painted in gold and covered in baby and oil. And even his voice, they've probably changed that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, com- he's completely different. Right. Completely different. But he is in a few other things. He's not quite as big as an actor as some of the other ones. But if you saw him, you'd probably recognize him. He's in a lot of things. So it's got some pretty... Xerxes, did you say? Yes. I thought the king was called something else. The king... So Gerard Butler is called King Leonidas. Yes. And then the Persian king yes. is called Xerxes. Oh, I they refer to him as like the God King and King of Kings oh, okay. and things like that, but his name is Xerxes. Xerxes the first. Is there anything else that stands out to you in the movie? Mm. Uh, I, I, well, I mean, I just yeah, I guess I wonder um, if I'd seen the movie, I never, I never would have thought it was based on history. 
No, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, yeah. So I'm yeah. quite interested to know that. I mean, that's what stood out to me that this, that was, it must have been a pretty crazy made up story. But Yeah. So the, the, we, we call the, the podcast the Based on History podcast, and we talk about movies that claim to be based on history. They have done an active job, the producers and the director, to say that this movie is not based on history, and that's why it's so, like, kind of fanciful and things like that. But you, I, I like, I, I just don't know how you can get around it because it is all of the, most of the main characters are all real characters. The battle is real. The places are real. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they've taken a historical event and historical people and then they come out and they say, oh, well, it's not based on history so we can do what we want. It's like, no, I mean, like, I understand you can do what you want. You have artistic license. You can make whatever movie you want, but you can't claim it's not based on history when you've taken an actual historical event and then twisted it, you know? So I just don't really that think that that claim has good legs, really. It is based on history. It's based on the Battle of Thermopylae. It's based on Leonidas. Okay. You know, it'd be like taking the Normandy landings and then having, like, laser guns and then saying like oh well you know it's not based on history right. we, you know it's like well yeah that's d-day you know like we mm-hmm. we all know what that is and this is one of the most famous kind of last stand battles in in history so yeah i mean i, I just don't think there's any way around it to say that it's not based on historical events the the one thing that i remember standing out about this movie right off the bat or two things really is one how jacked they all are mm-hmm and I think they did some personal training before and that. two the amount of blood and gore that was in the movie and i remember it kind of being a little uh, a little bit of outrage from parents and things like that about how much blood and gore was mm-hmm. you know how graphic it really was and then of course that making every like high school teenage kid want to see it even mm-hmm. more <laughs> and the the about how jacked they are, I was reading, I watched a couple of videos on like their training regiment that they did and this personal training that they brought in to train all the Spartans. And apparently, the, most of the movie is all CGI'd and apparently none of the muscles are CGI'd other than like glossing, you know, glossing okay. I mean, them I up. I mean, they look pretty real to me. Yeah, they're all just, just massively jacked. Mm-hmm. And they did this training regiment where... I forgot how long it lasted, but it was like months. They were preparing for this role for months. And every single day was a different full workout so that your muscles were never, you're never working at the same muscles in a row. And you're working out every mm-hmm. single muscle group. And it was all, you know, and I watched, they're they're doing crazy CrossFit and just weird out, out of the box style wow. things. Yeah, and they're all just massively shredded. Very, very cool. The other thing that I remember about this movie is the cultural impact it had once it came out. I mean, there was Spartan stuff everywhere. Everywhere you look, there was... You know, you, no, I don't remember that. It's like, you know, from people dressing up in Halloween costumes to parody movies mm-hmm. to T-shirts with, like, you know, like, kind of... Especially that the military really gravitated towards this movie, and you started seeing Spartan-inspired things all over the place. From just, like, little logos on T-shirts to patches that were on uniforms all sorts of things. I mean, you, you could find, you could go into any like kind of like novelty store in the mall or anything like that. And there would be 300 Spartan, everything you could buy swords, shields, helmets. So, um, so then that's my, I guess my first question about the accuracy is the costumes. Were they accurate? No, 
Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, there are... Oh, so, there are some things about... That's just a good segue to kind of get in some of the things that they got wrong right mm -hmm. off the bat. There are some things about the costumes, specifically the Spartans, that they got right. Their spears, more or less, look like what the spears would look like dur during that time. The spears that the Spartans would have been using in history, they're about eight feet long. And the spearhead would look more or less like that. And then they have that kind of metal, that kind of metal ball spike on the end. That's mm -hmm. what is called the lizarder, and that's for like killing wounded soldiers okay. on the ground. A counterbalance. The lizarder. Why is it called that? That's just the name for it. They must have a reason. I'm sure they do. I looked. <laughs> I kind of tried to find out, and they just said like everything I found just said this is what this is what it's called. This is what it's called in the translation and everything okay. like that. But the spear's pretty accurate. The shields more or less are fairly accurate. The size and shape and, and how they kind of hold them is accurate. What's not accurate about the shields is that in the movie, they're portrayed as all bronze. Mm -hmm. It's a completely bronze shield. It would have been a wooden shield with bronze covering over it. Right. And then also the Spartans have that lambda, that kind of... All of their shields have that kind of triangle mm -hmm. that go across the shield. That's the symbol for Sparta. And every Spartan has a lambda on their shield. Now, at this time period, we're not exactly sure if the, the Greek city-states were doing that because every Greek city-state had their own little symbol that they would put on their shield. And they're not sure if the Spartans and the other states were doing that at this time or if it was more like, your family crest or your family emblem or a personal symbol or something right. like that. Okay. So they, they very well could have done. It just probably wouldn't have been as completely uniform. So there's no um, remaining shields from this time, are there? Not from this time. They do have some Greek city-state shields, but everything we kind of know about warfare for the Greek city-states mm -hmm. is from a later period of time. So what time did this all take place? So the Battle of Thermopylae takes place in 480 B.C., so about 10 years okay. after the end of that Ionian Revolt episode that, that I had done. Okay. The Battle of Marathon and that second Greek invasion about 10 years later when the Persians when the Persians come back. Right. So the going back to the, the kind of costume. the costumes, yeah. The helmets that the Spartans are wearing are not they're obviously based on history. They're influenced by historical Greek city-state helmets. But there are no helmets that look like that. And the Spartans weren't wearing helmets like that. What At the Battle of Thermopylae, the helmets that they would have been wearing would have... You know, everything's so uniform for, for them in the movie. And it's, that's just so you can distinguish the Spartans from the Persians. And mm -hmm. so they all look cool and everything like that. But you would have seen a whole bunch of different type of helmets. The kind of Corinthian helmet that... if you, Have you seen the movie Troy with yes, Brad Pitt? Yeah. The kind of helmet that, that Brad... What? That was filmed in Malta. I've been to where they filmed oh, part well, of that. Oh, that's very cool. Mm -hmm. But that helmet that uh, Brad Pitt's character wears, it's kind of got those cheek pieces that kind of come down, and it's very narrow mm -hmm. eye slits. That's, mm -hmm. Even that itself is a Hollywood interpretation of a Corinthian helmet, but those were in style, and they were kind of coming towards the end of their kind of heyday at this time. But you definitely would have seen some of those style helmets at the Battle of Thermopylae, some more open face ones that just have like a very slender nose piece and then cheek pieces that kind of hang down. They you, you know all sorts of different types of helmets and and 
uh, even armor. We'll would, talk about the armor in just a second. Would the king have had that plume? So he probably did have a plume, but also pretty much everyone else probably would have had a plume. A lot of these things depend on how much money the individual soldier had because everything was supplied by himself. Right. And so if you're a super rich Spartan, you're going to have the top of the line helmet. You're going to have the top of the line armor and things like that. And speaking of armor, in the movie, they're all wearing leather Speedos and Mm -hmm. like a red cape and nothing else. Every single Spartan would have been wearing some type of body armor. Uh, See, I was thinking these guys are clever. One, because it's warm, they don't want to get hot. And two, because (laughs) they'll be more agile without the heavy armor. Well, they would be more agile (laughs) without the armor, but they also would have died a whole lot faster. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking. Wow, they're just super, super good at using their shields. (laughs) The the shield is obviously the main part of Mm -hmm. their armor, the way they fight. And we'll talk about the way they fight as well. But... They would have been wearing some type of breastplate or cuirass or something like that, and it would have either been made and it would have been either made out of bronze, mm-hmm. or it would have been made. There's this there's this uh, type of armor called a lenothorax, and it's like woven or glued linen or fabric of some kind. Leather is used, and then they mm-hmm. kind of sometimes put scales on it, and it's all one piece. But you put it on and it kind of folds together around you and then it kind of like ties in the center or kind of ties over the shoulders and then ties along kind of like the rib cage kind of uh, kind then of then area. You wouldn't get to see their um, buff torsos. It, it, yeah, exactly. It's all, yeah, <laughs> you know, if, if you work out for six months to yeah, get and jacked then and then cover it up with armor, then you don't see any of the muscles. But they would have all been wearing some type of breastplate. They would have all been wearing some type of greaves, like the kind of things that protect like your arms. And then they would have been wearing like leg, some type of shin protection and and things like that. So the thing about the hoplite, which is what the individual soldier in the Greek city states is called, you know, like you would call like a Marine or, you know, like a paratrooper. So one of those Spartans is a hoplite. Yes. Yeah. So each individual soldier is a hoplite. Mm -hmm. The thing about them is they are heavy infantry. They are heavy infantry, which means they're going to be covered in armor. They're not light troops. And so, essentially, in the movie, they're light troops because they wear almost no armor. Mm -hmm. They don't even wear any clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Even when they're, like, in the forum talking about politics and things like that, they have, like, a shawl over it, and then you can Mm -hmm. tell that they're just (laughs) naked. Naked, yeah. I just thought, well, they're in Greece. It's hot. Probably realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But... So, uh, yeah, they would have been wearing armor of some kind. But the spear and the shield are more more or less correct. The helmets are influenced, although they don't really look the same. But the Spartan's color is red. The Spartans are known for wearing the red capes. That stands out really, really well as well. Yes, there's historical records of of, uh, other armies fleeing just because they saw, like, the red capes and the lambda on the shield they didn't even fight the spartans they just knew the spartans were coming in and then they fled you know of course that's later on in time you know most of the historical records but they were known they were known for that so they very well could have been wearing red capes mm-hmm. and they very well could have had the lambdas. what about their shoes were they accurate the sandals that the they were sandals. wearing i guess i mean i don't really know all that much about ancient sandals mm-hmm. but <laughs> i i don't know i have no idea about their sandals but i do know that they would have been flat-footed <laughs> sandals not with the arch because that came later 
Oh, you mean like heels and things no, like that? No, you know how you you'd mentioned recently about how um, all shoes were oh, flat Oh, used to be, yes, yeah, yes. They would have been flat sandals. Okay. No arch support <laughs> on those sandals. <laughs> but I did look up and read a little bit about what Spartan women would wear. Mm-hmm. And what Lena Headey's character is wearing is obviously not historically accurate. It, she looks like... She's the stripper version. She's gone to that um, toga party. Yeah, she's gone to a toga party. But Spartan women did wear pretty scandalous clothing. And it would have gone over the shoulders and basically like a really skinny poncho. And it just would have had a head, like a head hole in the middle. And it would have just gone down either side. And then they would have belted it in the middle. So basically from both sides, all the double slits all the way... Naked sides. Yeah, you basically see naked sides, arms bare. So they okay. are wearing fairly, you know, little bit of clothing. Not very modest. Not very, yeah. But, I mean, like, their breasts would have been covered, you know. Yeah. You know, her character in the movie, it's like cleavage all the way down to her belly button and, mm-hmm. you know, a weaving fabric all over mm-hmm. and everything like that. But uh, it's just kind of a okay. fanciful version of it. Just kind of a cool little tidbit about women's fashion during in Sparta. Um, I was going to say, actually, the scene that stood out for me that didn't make sense to me was that final fight um, where they just all die and they had fought mm-hmm. and they, they were like unkillable up until that moment and then all of a sudden they just all get killed. Yeah. Um, it just kind of felt like they had these little like battle formations that they were doing with the way that they would use their shields and they were so organized and then all of a sudden they were just all sort of flailing around like not using their shields as protection and just all getting shot with arrows it was like well why why now are they getting killed in that way but why weren't they killed in that way a little bit earlier yeah so i mean in the movie it's all kind of different but they do all die. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. All of the Spartans do Part, die. And what about the one? Does the one survive? So actually, two Spartans survive. We'll talk about them after the battle. But two Spartans survive the battle for different reasons. But they're not there at the very end. Okay. They, you know, he gets sent away. Yes. Two Spartans get sent away before the last stand. They survive the battle of Thermopylae. So now we'll just, we'll kind of just go into the kind of chronological events and then we'll kind of hit on things as, as we come along to, to them. So we'll start at with the beginning of the movie is the Persian messengers riding into Sparta and, you know, asking for them to submit for earth and water and, and, mm-hmm. and that. So that did happen almost, I mean, very, very closely to how it's portrayed in... So killed those messengers they kill the messengers the only thing that happens differently is that they it happens many years before it happens before that but they do kick them down a well the athenians who they talk about also they like throw them off a cliff or or something like that so they do reject the persian you know envoy right and kill them but then that's kind of like bad karma to kill a messenger because you know they're not they're just bringing the message mm-hmm. and so the and the Spartans actually send some Spartans to Persia to be like hey you can kill our messengers so that like we get the car- oh. <laughs> we we can get the karma back and <laughs> the Persians are like no we're not we're, we don't want bad karma either so they're just like go home like uh. go like go away 
But that's crazy. <laughs> but <laughs> what that effectively does is put Sparta at war with Persia, and you know all all of Greece as well. Persia already wants to come back to, mm-hmm. you know, destroy Athens for supporting the Ionian Revolt. And they tried it once and failed, so they're coming back with an even larger army. And so what I'm confused about is I thought that um, the Persians were coming and heading. I thought this bit was on their way to Athens, not to Sparta. It is. Okay, so because they've already they made a comment in the movie that. Um, that the Athenians had rejected them or something. I can't remember mm-hmm. what, but it was kind of seemed like they had already they had already fought the Athenians and were on their way. Like, why were the Spartans? Right. So Sparta was is after Athens, isn't it? Yes. So that's why that's why it doesn't line up historically very well because this event happens before the second Persian invasion of Greece. So like when they come and have that battle of Marathon mm-hmm. and then the Athenians beat them and push them out and they go mm-hmm. back to Persia, this event where they kill the messengers happens before that battle of Marathon. Okay. In the movie, they make it seem like this is what leads up to the battle of Thermopylae. But really it's years before that. And so Sparta and the rest of Greece are kind of starting to gear up for war with Persia. They know they're coming back. They killed their messengers. Athens is still there. And so the Persians are coming back for the third invasion of Greece under Xerxes. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Okay, I think so. So in the movie, you're right. It doesn't really make sense because you're saying, well, I thought this already happened, and it did. But just the scene where they killed the messengers happened years before the Battle of Thermopylae. They just do it because it's dramatic for the movie and to show that this is kind of the beginning of Sparta getting ready for war with right, Persia. Okay. So they're they're already at war with Persia, and so the movie just kind of dramatizes it and kind of closes it together just so that it looks you know more dramatic. Okay. So at this point in time in 480 BC, the Greek city states are all starting per- to prepare for war with Persia. They know that the Persians are coming, and so all of the Greek city states, which are their own little independent kingdoms, mm-hmm. get together. And kind of have a council of war and decide that they are going to defend Greece from the Persian invasion. And they start talking about where they are going to do this. And they first decide that they're going to defend this area called the Vale of Temp, which is kind of a pass through the mountains. But then they realize there's another pass around it. They wouldn't be able to defend it. So then they settle on Thermopylae. This is decided by all of the Greek city-states. And an Athenian named Themistocles is kind of the one who kind of... the It's his brainchild. They're going to defend the pass at Thermopylae, and they're going to defend at sea and have a naval battle. So it wasn't just 300 Spartans that decided to defend that area. No, yeah. This was all of the Greek city-states together. In the movie, right. they make it seem like it's just Sparta alone, and they're the only ones that do it. But the, all of the Greeks decide that they are going to do this together. Right, okay. So down at the Straits of Corinth, that little tiny strip of land that connects the, like kind of where Sparta is, the Peloponnese to the rest of Greece, Mm -hmm. some Greeks go down there and they start building a wall across that little strait, that little strip of land. Oh, yeah, you said that there's some kind of evidence that there's still some remains left of that wall. I think there's still some remains. Now they built a canal through it so that ships Mm -hmm. could go through there and there's bridges over it, but at the time it was just all connected. You You could walk across it. But, so the the Spartans are going to go up to Thermopylae 
with some allies and defend the pass at Thermopylae. And the Athenians and a few of the other allies with their ships are going to go to this place called Artemisia and and have a, a naval battle with the Persian naval forces. And so it's a two-pronged defense, both using the natural landscape of the area to funnel in the Persian masses mm-hmm. to negate their numbers. Okay. And so around this time is, so it's like late August, early September timeframe. And that's when the Greeks have the Olympic games and all of like their festivals and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so the Greeks can't go to war during that time. It's just part of their law. And so King Leonidas does go to the Oracle at Delphi to seek guidance from them. So in the movie, he climbs up there and he's talking to those weird mm, kind, mystics. Yeah, the mystics. And they've got mystics. the little the girl doing the dance mm-hmm. and everything like that. That's in Delphi, which is like not near Sparta. It's like up in mainland Greece. Okay. And so that's another reason why like it things take a little bit longer. Because mm-hmm. okay. it, it all happens kind of in four eighty one to four eighty within that year time frame. He travels the they have the Council of War. He travels to Delphi. He seeks the Oracle. And the Oracle tells him something similar. He's, um like it's not quite like don't go to war. But it's kind of like, if you go to war, you'll die, but you'll save Sparta. It's all kind of, you know, mystic, oracle Like, mm-hmm. it can be interpreted multiple ways, as they always are, so basically. And were they really, were the oracles really those kind of young women that were basically, like, trafficked rape victims? So in the movie, they make it seem like these guys are abusing these women. And they they probably were. And they did take, like, the most beautiful women. It's not just... In the movie, they say the be- most beautiful women from Sparta. Mm-hmm. You know, Delphi's not in Sparta. So they did take a lot of beautiful young women and make them oracles. And the the oracle at Delphi... You can go to the remains of the temple at Delphi. And it's like there used to be... Or they, I, they don't really know. Historians don't really know why, but they the oracle where these girls would get like high on fumes from the earth mm-hmm. and then they would like dance and speak in tongues that could only be interpreted by and those these, like these just any old beautiful women that they take i mean i guess they don't they... have to have any kind of like s- special psychic gifts before they're picked no yeah no the the psychic gifts and things like that come from like the fumes that were released okay. from the and there are kind of like sulfuric like pockets down there but they don't really know exactly how they got high and interpreted okay. in, in these things. So they very well could have been like using some type of smoking spice or, or something like that. But King Leonidas does go there and to seek you know advice from them. But they can't go to war because it's their Carnia, which is like their, their harvest festival. The Olympic Games are going on. And so King Leonidas decides he is going to take his 300 personal bodyguard and head up to Thermopylae to defend the pass. He does get some support from Thebes and Thesbia. In the movie, it's Arcadia, which is another region in the Mm -hmm. Peloponnese near Sparta. And they do help, but not at the Battle of Thermopylae. Okay. So King Leonidas and his 300 Spartans. Now, so something that's never said in the movie, not represented at all, is that Spartan culture... All of the men are soldiers. Now, they do talk about that, right? They had that scene where he's like, I brought more soldiers than you. But the thing that allowed the Spartan men to all be soldiers is the heavy reliance on slavery in Sparta. I mean, 
there were very few free Spartan men in Sparta compared to the slave population in Sparta. Okay. And the slave population in Sparta had different levels. There's certain ones that are like almost free. You can make money that you, you could buy your freedom. You just can't vote and have the same rights. Mm -hmm. And then they have a couple other layers at the bottom of the, these, this population called the helots. And they were a conquered people that were basically like chattel slaves. And their whole entire job was to serve the Spartan warriors. So when in each Spartan warrior had like between three and seven helots that attended to them. So like when they're marching, the Spartan men are not carrying their sword or their uh, spear and shield. The helots are carrying it for See, them. See, because I think that they made the comment in the movie that they were once slaves, but it seemed like that they were all free people now, which is yeah, why so they were so anti having the Persians take them as slaves. Right. So that's that's talking back to their like mystic history of like archaic, you know, mythological Sparta. Is you know used to be slaves. We broke free and freed mm -hmm. ourselves. He's not talking about what's ongoing in Sparta right now. It didn't happen recently. Sparta's been its own city state for a while, and the Spartans' culture has been established. So the Spartan men themselves have been free for a long time. No one who was alive at that point as a Spartan soldier or citizen was a slave. So he he's talking about like their their history. Right. Okay. But when the Spartans march off to war, there would have been a massive, even bigger group of people marching behind them that were their, like, slaves, their helots. I see, okay. So when 300 Spartans go to war, it's, it's really, like, you know, 900 to 1,000, you know, people marching because of all, all of the slaves that would have been coming okay. with them. They, yeah, so they meet up with the Thespians and the Thebans to help defend the, the pass. And now we'll talk about Thermopylae itself for a little bit. Thermopylae now looks nothing like it did during that time period. The gulf that is there, the silt that's kind of been filtered in there, has changed the landscape massively. At the time of the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC, the water of that gulf would have come right up to where the battlefield is. And there's a road that you can drive past the battlefield, and there's some monuments on one side. They're pretty sure that the water would have come right up to that road. And so that whole entire stretch of coastline between the mountains and what the water would have been during this time period, in some areas, is less than 100 yards wide. And in a couple areas, it's it's like this. There's... So did they represent that well in the, with the CGI? Is no. not... Okay. In some ways, yes, they make it very narrow. They make it very narrow, but it would it would look nothing like that. There there is no big cliff. It's okay. just a beach in the water, which is still a natural defense against cavalry and chariots and large mm -hmm. formations of men getting around your flank and things like that. But they wouldn't have been able to like push them off a cliff okay. and you know kill them when they fall into the sea and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And also, that's what's misrepresented in the movie is the hot gates itself. You know, they, they come in that little narrow mountain pass mm -hmm. at, at the beginning and they build the wall that goes from the, you know, from the gate to the cliff. Mm -hmm. So they do build a wall, which is called the Phocian wall. And this was built hundreds of years earlier by the Phocians, which are the people that live in that area against, they were at war with another, another Greek city state at that time. And so the Spartans and their allies do rebuild the Phocian Wall. But in the movie, it looks like this wall blocks the path that goes around it. And therefore, the Persians have to go into this like canyon 
that's there. Mm -hmm. There is no canyon like okay. that there. The hot gates themselves only refer to the fact that there's these three areas along the coastline that get funneled into a small area. And then the hot part of the hot gates comes from the hot springs that are in that area. So it's, there's like from the sulfur and the you know, like volcanic activity, it's like heated water that, mm -hmm. that comes down in like a little spring and a, like a little creek that goes down to the ocean. And so that's where the term hot gates come from. There is no actual gate. There is no actual canyon. It's just the fact that in certain areas, there's easily defensible spots that you can kind of post up and stop an army. Okay. So that part of the movie is is wrong. There is an area close by there that looks similar. And I think a lot of people have gone there and thought, oh, this must be the hot gates. But really, it's just a narrow strip of land in between the mountains and the water. Okay. And so what the what the Spartans and their allies do is they built they rebuild the Phocian Wall, but from what we can tell, they never did that kind of like funneling act that they do in the movie. All of the fighting takes place on the front out front of the wall. So the wall is just kind of extra protection. There is a little gap in between kind of like the mountainside and the wall itself so that the Spartans can get in and out from like where their camp is behind the wall mm -hmm. and then kind of get out into the area. But almost all of the fighting is done in flat open ground in front of the wall. The funneling act is just from the natural landscape itself because the Spartans need room as well to maneuver. And we'll talk about the way the Spartans fight. The way the Greek, and not just Sparta, but the Greek city-states itself. So the Greek city-states itself they all fight in what's known as a phalanx. And they really only show that at the opening battle in the movie. When they're in the line, they've got their shields, mm -hmm. and they've got, and then, you know, they're in that kind of, that spear phalanx. Well, kind of like pushing with their shields and then stabbing, and then pushing with their shields and right, stabbing. Right, right. And so that that's more or less how a phalanx works. And the Spartans would have never, under any circumstances, unless they had, like, lost the battle and were retreating, but during the battle itself, we have never broken that formation. That is where the okay. power of their entire military strategy comes from. So when they break out and they're doing all their ninja moves mm -hmm. and their individual fighting and they're, you know, killing Spartans mm -hmm. left and right with their swords and things like that, it would have never been like that. It would have okay. always been the Spartan failings. together as one unit. Yes, and that is the whole point of their training, mm -hmm. the whole point of the military armament that they have. We don't, and like I said, we don't exactly know how the Greek phalanx worked at this time because all of our historical records come from, from a later date. But we do know that they were fighting in the phalanx at this time. So it wouldn't have been individual soldiers running out on their own. Well, Leonidas did suggest, make that suggestion that that was how they fought when he was talking to that um, hunchback. Yes, yeah, he, he talks about it, and they mm -hmm. do do it in the movie. But mm -hmm. then after that initial scene, yeah, they're just they all, all yeah, they just like, break formation right. and run around like a bunch of, you know, madmen. So you can mm -hmm. see all of the muscles and and, did, and, did and things that, like that. Um, did that guy exist? That one, the um, the weird looking hunchback guy, Ethelteas or Ethelteas or what his name was. Yeah, he he existed, but he was not a Spartan reject. Okay. Or a hunchback. He was just a local, and some people think he was like a goat farmer or something mm -hmm. like that. He's been portrayed as a goat farmer before. Okay. But he he is a traitor, and he is the one that tells the Persians, hey, there's this path. Yeah. Right. But 
the in real life, the Spartans arrive there and they're making their preparations for this battle. They know that the path is there and they send a force to block it. There's a force of Phocians who are the local people okay. there. There's some so there's a Greek hoplite contingent blocking that pass. So we'll talk a little bit about Spartan culture and then we'll get into the battle itself. In the movie they they talk about these things and they more or less portray it, you know, factually accurate. The Spartans would discard any babies that were disformed or unhealthy or sickly or anything like that. And in the movie, you know, they show that hunchback guy, mm -hmm. but and saying like, okay, well, he, you, you would see, okay, if they, they had a baby like that, they're going to throw it off the cliff. But, well, but they kind of explained in the movie that they, the only reason he survived was because his, because of his mother's love, and she fled with him. Right, but what I'm saying is that like in your mind, you're like, oh, disfigured babies like that get discarded. But in real history, like mm -hmm. it could be something as small as like a birthmark that a that a priest deemed like a bad omen right. or something okay. like that. Wow. So, I mean, there are all these random weird scenarios where Spartan babies would just get like discarded. Oh my goodness. And then they kind of go into Leonidas's training that mm -hmm. he, it's called the Agogi. And every single Spartan male, except for the firstborn son of the king, and even some of them went through it anyways, would go through this Agogi, which is, the training mm -hmm. that starts at, at seven, seven, yeah. at seven years old, and then it ends when you're twenty, I think, and then between twenty and thirty, you kind of earn your spot, and then at thirty, you're a full-fledged Spartan male citizen. So why does the king's firstborn son not do that? Not do what? The agogi. Because they because boys die during it. It's very very hard on them. They aren't fed. They have to fight and right. fend for themselves. And so your next king could possibly die. So was Leonidas not the firstborn son? No, he was not. Okay. So he was. So his dad, who was king before him, mm -hmm. had three sons from two different wives. Leonidas is the second son of his first wife. Both of his older brothers, so his half-brother and his full brother, become king of Sparta. Or excuse me, only one of them does. One of them becomes king. The other one tries to become king but flees. He dies later on. So how, hang on, how is he the second son if he's got two older brothers? Wouldn't that not make him the third son? Well, he's the second son from his, from the king's first wife. Okay. So he is technically the third son of, of the king of Sparta at that time. But Leonidas' father's oldest son becomes king. But he's removed from power mm -hmm. for, I think, like being insane. And then... Leonidas's second older brother dies in exile. And so that's why Leonidas becomes king. And that's why Leonidas is one of the few Spartan kings that also went Has through the, the Agogi. Yeah. Okay. So he's got the training. So that's not normal. Not, not normal. Although there are historical records of the king's sons, firstborn, going through it at certain points mm -hmm. in time. But overall, not the norm. So that's why Leonidas is viewed as this great leader and great soldier and at that council of war Leonidas is chosen to lead the army at Thermopylae it's not just because he himself is going there with his Spartans by themselves mm -hmm. he's seen as a good leader by all the Greeks as a good warrior by all of the Greeks but just not at that specific they just didn't want him at that specific time to go is that right so the movie makes it seem like Sparta says no you can't go mm -hmm. but that 
and they kind of have that subplot with the council, you know, kind of scheming behind his back and things like that. That that's all just kind of made up. So he can't take the whole army because of the festival and the Olympic Games, but it's never it's never like kind of in contention that he's going to go and he's always going to go. He everyone knows he's going to go and, and defend Thermopylae. So we get to the first day of the battle when the because the Spartans and their allies so, get there so, first. So sorry, one more question about yeah. so so they have that training that they go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also mention in the movie that um, the only the three hundred that he chooses to take, they've all got wives or got all got children. They've so all they've got all, they've all got children. They've all got children. So is that was that a for real thing? I think so. Yeah, I I can't remember exactly, but I remember reading something about that. He's his three hundred. They all have you know sons to replace them and, right, and things okay. like that. But so we get to the first day of the battle. And the Persians come up to them and they ask them to submit. And they basically say, lay down your arms. And the Spartans reply with, come and take them. Which is, would have, they would have said, Molon Labe. And that's a real line. So in the movie... Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, so the, the Spartans are known for their one-liners. They say them all of the time, mm-hmm. and part of that agogi training is being taught how to speak what's called iconically, and that is the hmm. Spartan wit, okay. is the short, sarcastic one-liners that they are taught basically in school to reply to people. So that when are our soldiers today taught these one-liners or well, taught this wit, <laughs> we usually just take them from movies okay. like like <laughs> like three hundred. But the come and take it line was also used by the Texas forces in the Texas Revolution at a certain battle. There was a cannon that the Mexicans wanted to take from them, and they made a flag with a cannon on it and said, come and take it. Right. And at the battle, and this is directly from the Spartans at Thermopylae. That's cool. Almost all of the the kind of cheesy one-liners that are said in the movie are actually said by the Spartans. So, like, whenever... The one guy gets his arm cut off by Michael Fassbender. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, our arrows are so numerous, they'll blot out the sun. And this, and he goes, we'll fight in the shade. That's a, that's a real line. They act, Yeah, so they, <laughs> they actually said that. And they, they have lines like that throughout history. When Alexander the Great's father is conquering Greece with his Macedonians, he sends a letter to the Spartans and said, if I come down there, I'll destroy you. And the Spartans send a one-word answer back to Philip, and it just says, if. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like, and they're not even powerful at this point in time. Okay. They have no real influence other than, like, their little area. And they're and still... It's kind of like psychological warfare. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. So they say, you know, they, they do the come and take it line. And it's said that Xerxes' army is, you know, Herodotus who is our main guy who tells us about this. Yes. It exaggerates everything. He says the Persian army is like two to three million men. Modern estimate. So, so hang on a minute. That Herodotus guy, um, mm-hmm. you were talking about the guy in the mini. Was that who you were talking about? This one guy that survives the 300? No. Oh, no. so this is a different guy. Yeah, Her- okay. Herodotus is a Greek historian. Oh, okay. All right. So that's Who was confused. alive during, uh, in and around this time. Okay. Who came out with something called the Greek histories. Mm-hmm. And he tells from like the mythological age. Okay. 
all the way up to past kind of. I see. So you're not talking about the narrator of. Um, no, no, yeah, the narrator in the movie, the Faramir's character, mm-hmm. he's based on a real Spartan that survived the battle. And I, you know, I don't know if he was a storyteller or whatnot, but that's that's kind of his character. But Herodotus says the Persians are in the millions of men. We know that the Persian army could not have been that just from a logistical standpoint. But they're pretty sure it was in the hundreds of thousands. Okay. It's a ma- it's a massive, massive army. So we're looking at somewhere between like 100 and 300,000 Persians versus roughly 7,000 Greek city-states. So how many to one is that? I don't do the math. <laughs> you should have done the math I'm, before I'm, this. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not the math guy. <laughs> I've got a tired brain today. I can't do <laughs> we'll cut that part out. Thanks for <laughs> But... So it's a massive number of Persians versus a very small number of Spartans and their allies. And on the first day of battle, the Persians are said to have sent 10,000, like two groups of 10,000 men against the Spartans. And it's the Medes and some of the other groups of, of Persians. And the Spartans and their allies stop them. And they fight, apparently... They just destroy them. They are ineffective against the, against the phalanx, and the Persian arrows are ineffective against the heavy armor of the Hoplites. So then they retreat. The second wave that come in are known as the Immortals. And in the movie, they they show this. They show the Immortals okay. coming. And in the movie, they're like, they look like, those, ninjas yeah the guys in the black costumes and the and the masks yeah and they're like they some of the masks come off and they look like monsters and okay. things like that the yes. re, you know obviously they they weren't monsters they were just regular men but the thing that the reason why they're called the immortals is that it's a group of 10,000 trained full-time soldiers of the Persian army. Mm-hmm. Historians talk about wow. what that actually means, you know, and, and the little details is the personal bodyguard or is it just a group of men that are, per, you know, professional soldiers. They don't, they're not exactly sure, mm-hmm. but regardless, they're the elite wing of the Persian army. And they're called immortals because anytime one guy dies, they find someone to replace him. So the number is always at 10,000. Okay, well. And so the myth of them spreads throughout the mm-hmm. empire and areas. And they're like, oh my goodness, these guys, they're, you know, they're immortal. Mm-hmm. And so the immortals come in and they can't break the phalanx either. This is all on day one. And so then now the immortals retreat. Well, uh, now we kind of get to the second day of battle. And the second day of battle starts off pretty much exactly how it is in the first day. Xerxes sends a ton of men against the Spartans, and they fare no better than the than the day before. They retreat again, and they try and parlay with the Spartans again. It fails, and Xerxes and the Persians are trying to figure out a way to defeat defeat this army. Mm-hmm. Real quick, at the same time that the Battle of Thermopylae is going on, there's another naval battle with the Athenians going on in the the Straits of Artemisium. Which is the which is the subject of the second the sequel to three hundred okay. the three hundred rise of empire okay. it takes place and, and and we'll do that movie later on but just know that there's the re, one of the reasons why the Persians don't have any support from the sea is because the Athenian navy is keeping the Persian army uh, at bay okay yeah so that's an important part to where why the Spartans are able to just hold them and they don't have to worry about any of the ships or or, okay. or, or anything like that 
So in the movie, when they show the Persians landing at that bay, there would have been all, probably almost no ships there okay. because this army marched all the way around on the land. The second day doesn't go well for the Persians again, and they're trying to figure out a way. This is when the traitor comes up to Xerxes and tells him about the path that goes around the mountains so that they can outflank and come around from the rear of the Spartans and, and, the, and the allies. In the movie, it's the hunchback, and he's, you know, spurned by Leonidas because mm-hmm. he can't raise his shield, mm-hmm. which I always find funny in the movie because he's like, clear the dead of the battlefield and bring us water if you want to help. And he gets mad and runs away. Well, then when he goes into such detail about how important the phalanx is, but then after that first engagement, yeah, exactly. no one's fighting in the phalanx. What a hypocrite. Yeah, and when you look at them in the phalanx, there's like, there's like five or six guys walking behind the phalanx, killing all of the wounded mm-hmm. Persians on the ground. He could have been doing any of that. Mm-hmm. Or, or they had, the, in the movie, they have the Acadians. Mm-hmm. He could have fought with them. He yeah. could have had a place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a, a, a fighting place. Exactly, yeah. He could have yeah. had a fighting place that wouldn't have interfered with the precious phalanx that yes. Gerard Butler's talking about. <laughs> and in the movie, they wouldn't have had to worry about the traitor. You know, Would... You know. um, would the Persians have had giants and rhino riding people? <laughs> no, no, none of that's that's all that's all fake. All of that stuff okay. is fake. There is, you know, I mean, they didn't have elephants. Elephants, one, eat a ton. So when you're going on that long of a campaign, you're not going to bring elephants okay. and rhinos with you. Rhinos aren't trainable either. You I can't. Don't think you know, so I didn't know that anyone yeah. could ride a rhino. No. And all the kind of like grenades that they're using, you know, they're throwing those, magici- those magical people. Yeah, that that didn't happen either. Okay, so they weren't like a third wave of people that they sent the. No, yeah, there's the battle. They they add a whole bunch of stuff to make okay. it more dramatic during the battle, but none of that stuff, none of that stuff happened. Now there are some accounts of the Persians trying to use cavalry and chariots on okay. on the Persians. I mean, excuse on me, on on the Spartans. We don't exactly know when they did this, but they did try it. But because everything is so narrow, it it negated the ability of the, the maneuverability of the cavalry and the chariots, and it was just ineffective as well. Okay. So everything the Persians have tried has failed. But the traitor, who's either a goat, you know, goat mm-hmm. herder or a spurn Spartan hunchback, <laughs> we don't know. He goes to Xerxes and tells him about this path that goes around the mountains, basically for reward. You know, some type of some type of money and reward. And the Xerxes sends what's remaining of the immortals around this path at night. And so the Phocians who are up there, defending it, hear them coming, and they retreat to a little hill, thinking that they're going to fight They're going to fight the immortals. But the immortals just kind of leave a contingent there to keep them pinned down, and then keep on going so that they can get around the backside okay. of, the, of the Spartans. And so the, the Phocians send a runner to the Spartans to let them know, hey, you're being outflanked. And so by the uh, around the morning of the third day of battle, they know they're about to get surrounded. And so Leonidas sends the rest of the allies away from the battlefield. And he has decided that he is going to stay and cover their retreat. Now, there's some historical debate as to why he does this, because... A lot, a lot of people think like, oh, he's going to sacrifice himself so that Greece can have time to get an army together and things mm-hmm. like that and cover all of Greece and 
it, that doesn't really make sense. But what, what what does make sense is that he's going to allow the the other allies that are there to escape so that they can fight again. That's basically why he stays to okay. sacrifice him, uh, him and his and his men in this kind of last stand. Now, a few of the allies say, "Hey, we're staying too." It's uh, one one of the contingents is from an area that has been conquered by Persia already, mm-hmm. so they don't have a home. They say, "Hey, we're going to stay and fight." And one didn't of the, didn't he say something like the Spartans never give up, or they never what did what did he state about the Spartans fighting until the end? Or? No, they don't retreat. Okay. And there is some kind of evidence to the Spartans not retreating and kind of wanting to die in battle. They do kind of have that like kind of Viking-esque mentality mm-hmm. of dying in battle as the glorious death and and, and things like, like that. Samurai. Yeah, kind of like, yeah, that kind of mythos mm-hmm. that's around certain groups of warriors. But throughout history, the Spartans retreat. You know, okay. they, they, if they're losing a battle, the Spartans retreat. So his last stand is a self-sacrifice because Spartan armies have retreated before. And he is going to allow the rest of the men to get back to their areas, to be a part of the army, to fight the Persians again. So they retreat. A few of the contingents do stay to fight with the Spartans. And Mm -hmm. all of those helots, those slaves, they would have been there too. So there is still, it's not just the 300 that Mm -hmm. are there at the very, very end. But... After the morning on the third day, the Spartans are completely surrounded on both sides. And the Persians attack, and Leonidas gets killed in the fighting. So he dies at the beginning of the battle on the last day, the little kind of the last stand. Mm-hmm. There's a massive fight for the body of Leonidas, but the Spartans are able to recover it, and they fall back behind the Phocian Wall. The, the Persians begin to tear down the Phocian wall and the Spartans are holding them off. And then that's kind of when the immortals get around behind them or show up on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And so the Spartans and the remaining allies retreat to this little hill that's still there today. It's just kind of behind the Phocian wall and they form up in a circle and kind of do their last stand there. Now, some of the allies, the Thebans, they surrender to the Persians because they were kind of off by themselves fighting, mm-hmm. and then they later on they get made slaves of the Persians. Right. The last stand is on this hill, and the the Persians are said to have just rained arrow fire and wore them down. They're weary of battle. They've lost some men. You know. All those types of things. They, their spears have been broken. There's accounts of the Spartans fighting with their swords and rocks and their teeth and their hands until the last one is killed. And every single one of them, every single one of them dies, except for the two that we mm-hmm. talked about earlier. And they get sent away because they're wounded badly. Mm-hmm. One of So in the movie, he, he gets like a sword across the eye mm-hmm. and he gets sent away to spread the word and, and the message. Mm-hmm. Really... He did get wounded in the eye, so he does lose an eye, and they don't really know how. Some say it's like an infection of some kind. He gets sent away. Oh, so I take that back. Really, three Spartans survive the battle, but one of them sees the last stand and like runs back, and he dies in the fight. He's like this hero of Sparta for sacrificing himself. The other two that get sent away because hang on a minute. So he sees the last stand and runs away, but gets killed. So he's not. A no, survivor. he runs back to the battle. He runs back to the battle. Oh, okay. I don't know at what, what point during the last stand it is, but like he's they're leaving and he's like, no, I'm gonna stay. So he runs back and he's killed during the battle. Okay. 
the other two that get sent away are seen as they're in disgrace because they let all of their friends die. Okay. Even though they were wounded and sent away by the king, they're kind of ostracized in Sparta. One of them commits suicide because he can't take the shame wow. of not dying in battle. The other one, the one with the eye patch, mm-hmm. he is there at the that end battle that they show in the movie. It's called the Battle of Plataea. And he fights at the Battle of Plataea to regain his honor and kind of regains his honor, but also dies in the battle. Okay. So, but all the Spartans and, and the allies that are at this last stand hill, they all die. The helots, it would have been more than just a 300. Okay. They all die. And then Persia, the Persian army begin, uh, begins to move through Greece and they sack Athens. <laughs> they destroy Athens and then they kind of start conquering some of the other Greek city-states and then they retreat and they flee. But then the Persian army leads a contingent of like a smaller army in Greece to deal with the rest of the Greek city-states. And then the Persian army goes back to Persia. And I think that's because the supply lines couldn't supply them for, for so mm-hmm. long. So they have a smaller contingent that can kind of live off the land. Rest of the army, um, he's also the king of Persia. He's far away from his capital. So they've kind of extended their reach for this time period. They all go back to Persia. And then about a year later is when they have this Battle of Plataea, where the Spartan-led army and all the Greek city-states are there in full force, and they beat the Persian army at the Battle of Plataea and expel them from Greece. And it ends the Greco-Persian War. There's also another naval battle at Salamis, that the that the Greeks win, and that kind of keeps the Persians out of Greece for the foreseeable future, and the Greeks win. The Greeks win almost all of the Greco-Persian <laughs> Greco-Persian wars, and it's crazy because the Persian army is massive. They've got great cavalry. They've mm-hmm. got great bow fire. But for whatever reason, every time there's a pitch battle. Now Thermopylae is a pitch battle that the Greeks lose. But they were beat, you know, it's only because yeah. of this path that they can get around and surround them that they're able to really beat them. The Greek hoplite, the heavy infantry, was something that the Persians could just never deal with. And it goes like that all the way through Alexander all the way through Alexander the Great's time when his Macedonian phalanxes, which are different than they operate differently than the kind of Spartan phalanx, but they're heavy infantry as well. And the Persians just can't really get a handle on it. They never are able to really fight them very well. Are they little men? They might be, but I mean, every, all humans were smaller mm-hmm. at this point, you know, so it's, it's really the, it's really the, the armor and the spear that are, are the great equalizers with the numbers right. because the Greek spears are longer than the Persian spears and the Greek armor is better than the Persian armor. Some of the Persian troops are wearing no armor. And their shields are kind of like wicker shields. And their spears are short, kind of javelin-y spears. And if they are wearing armor, it's like quilted armor. And now some are wearing more traditional-style metal types of armor. Mm-hmm. But their army's so huge, not all their troops not all their troops and have would, armor. And um, would the soldiers on both sides at this time still just be men? There were no women that would fight? No women. Okay. Yeah, no women at all on the, on the battlefield at this time. Now, the Spartan women do have more freedoms than the rest of the Greek city-states, but you wouldn't view it as, like, any modern type of modern type of freedom. Right. You know what I mean? Like, 
it was, you know, in, in Athens, if a man was like, I mean, I'm trying to remember how exactly how it goes, but like if a woman was like raped by a man, she couldn't even like accuse him in the courts, you know? And if she did, she'd be like stoned to death or something mm-hmm. like that. In Sparta, the women could fight off the men from that sort of thing. And if the man was caught, he'd be killed for do for doing right. that. So there are, you know, that's kind of an extreme example of the rights of women in Sparta, but they were more, they had more rights than women throughout. More respected. Yeah. More, respected. but also, like I said, massive amounts of slaves, men, women, children, all in Sparta. Did, um, did that, you know, there was that father and son that were in the 300. Mm-hmm. Did they exist? I don't think so. I think okay. they're made, I think they're made up characters. Um, a lot, some of the Spartans, like I said, they're based on, other than Leonidas of the 300, the rest of them are all just kind of lightly, loosely based on, on some of the actual characters. Michael Fassbender's character is based on a real Spartan who said some of those lines, you know, Faramir's character is based on a real Spartan who survived the battle, you know, later on and things like that. So overall, the movie 300 gets a lot of the big points right, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know. They kick the Persians down the well. He goes to the Oracle at Delphi. He takes his 300 Spartans to Thermopylae. They mm-hmm. build the wall. They fight the Persians there, and they hold them off until they're able to get surrounded. The terrain is all amplified, but mm-hmm. still... So is everything else. So is everything else, right? So they, mm-hmm. the movie does get a lot right. It's just how crazy the right things are that they're doing and they twist and, and, you know, and, and get all of those, those things wrong. So from a historical timeline perspective, it's fairly accurate. It's just the, uh, rippling eight packs covered in, you know, coconut oil and, <laughs> and no armor and the Persian rhinos or the Persian goat headed guy playing the flute or Xerxes. Were they, were they all like the Persians decorated with all that jewelry as they were? So that, that is, there is some historical evidence to that because the Persians were always kind of seen as decadent to the mm-hmm. Greeks. And, you know, like the, the Persians would wear like eyeliner and things like that. But societies throughout the Middle East and Africa, yes. you know, they all did. You know, the Egyptians did mm-hmm. all of that kind of thing. So in their cultures, that's not seen as effeminate. But to the Greeks, it is. What is Persia now? Persia is Iran now. Okay. So if you're, it, I mean, per the, the, kingdom of persia was massive is basically all of the middle east okay. plus egypt and turkey okay so that whole area was the persian empire but if you're looking at it from a modern day perspective the people of iran would consider themselves persian okay i had a, i went to school with a girl her family was from iran and she when i asked her like oh what's your heritage she said oh we're persian so they they still okay. they still consider themselves persian to this day now there's obviously Lots of different groups of people in Iran in and of itself, but a large population of the Iranian people consider themselves Persian and have Persian heritage. So that is kind of the end of the story of the Battle of Thermopylae. And we'll just kind of go into some of the things that we thought about that versus the movie and what you thought about it and things like that. So what are some of your your thoughts, questions, surprises? Not surprised? Yeah, I guess I don't really have very many surprises from what you've told me, I don't think. Um, It was obvious kind of that they were... Everything was kind of way, way more dramatic than it would have been. Right. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I just, I guess I feel a bit more educated, but, um, and obviously the big surprise was that this was something that was pretty kind of true. Yeah. It happened when I had said at the beginning, I thought that, um, that it was so far fetched that I would never have thought it was based on a true story. I think the biggest surprise is that when you get past the kind of glossy, you know, veneer that is the 300 cinematography, mm-hmm. they still get a lot right. They still, you know, they, they kind of rearrange a few things and everything's kind of amped up and, mm-hmm. and dr- overly dramatic and stuff like that. But they actually got a lot right. You know, so I mean, when you watch the movie, you'd be like, oh my goodness, they're going to do a three, you know, this kind of style of the Battle of Thermopylae, which is super, super famous. It's like, it's going to be terrible. Right. And they're going to get nothing right. And then you look at it and you're like, oh, well, they kind of got that right. And they kind of got that right. And they kind of got that right. And they said this and they actually said that. And they said this and they actually said that, you know. Yeah, that's, so, yeah, that's pretty surprising. I wouldn't have guessed that those little one-liners were true. So, like, when you look at this movie compared to, like, the Battle of the Bulge movie, historically speaking, it's a lot more accurate. Lot more accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas the Battle of the Bulge has, like, the right uniforms and some of the right guns right. And, and things like that. It's right. kind of flip-flopped. You know, they get all of the kind of smaller details wrong in yeah. the 300, but they get all of the big details, all the big details right. Which, which way around do you prefer it to be? Um, I would prefer if they just did both of them. And got it all right. And got it all right. <laughs> <laughs> but I can kind of forgive 300 for its inaccuracies because it's also based on the graphic novel, right? So they're kind of retelling that kind of Mm -hmm. fanciful version of it. And one of the things that they said in making of the movie is that it's a retelling by Faramir's character to a group of soldiers on the eve of a battle. So just like we talked about Herodotus talking about how he exaggerates everything in his Mm -hmm. histories, they kind of looked at it from the point of view that this guy's trying to amp them up for battle the next morning. So when he's telling them this story, he's going to put in the rhino and he's going to put in okay. the giants. And now the immortals are monsters to try and be like, hey, we're not fighting humans tomorrow. We're fighting monsters. Let's mm-hmm. go defend Sparta. Let's go defend Greece. You know, okay. like, so that's kind of how they kind of got around that. That it's this retelling and he's going to you know, exaggerate and amplify to make the story more entertaining to the soldiers before they go into battle tomorrow. And and I can kind of get that. I can respect that aspect of it. Or just, you know, that whole Chinese whispers effect of any story that it gets told and told and told and told and told again as well. And... Wait, wait, uh, what do y'all call that game? Chinese whispers. Chinese whispers. Yeah. We call it telephone. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why we call it Chinese whispers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yes yeah exactly like that the myths build over time mm-hmm. they get and a bit like more that. exaggerated and a bit more off yeah each time yeah. just just like the spartans themselves mainly from this battle i think me personally i think the spartans are right up there with samurai as the most overrated fighting force of all time of all time and that is be- a lot to do with this movie and a lot to do with this historical battle of them dying in the last stand and killing a whole bunch of Persians and things like that. Now, that is not to say that I don't think the Spartans were good warriors. They were. I just think the myth of the Spartans has gotten so large that they are the one of the most overrated okay. forces of all time. 
at this time, one of the reasons for this myth is there's a scene where he's like, you know, what's your profession? He's like, I'm a potter, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a blacksmith, you know, and uh, I cradle babies, you know, and everything like that. And he's like, Spartans, and then they all, you know, who are? Mm-hmm. He's like, I brought more soldiers. That is. That is rooted in reality. At this time, all of the Greek city-states would have been civilian militia. Okay. So at when when the war comes, the call goes out, and the farmers and the potters okay, and the blacksmiths... So the Spartans were actually warriors. The Spartans were actually warriors, and they're the only Greek city-state at this time that had a professional army. And so up until a later date, the Spartans were the cream of the crop. And even some of the Persian army, right? We talked about the immortals may Mm -hmm. only being the professional contingent of that army and the rest kind of citizen, Mm -hmm. you know, militias that have been called up to fight. So when, when you've got untrained men fighting men who have spent their whole lives training, Mm -hmm. they are going to be better. They are going to be more elite. Mm -hmm. And it's like that with anything. So later on in history, when the Greek city-states are at war with each other, Sparta in the initial phases spanks them, especially on the land battles. They just destroy all of these city-states, and they're the strongest power in in the area. Later on, when I say later on, I mean like a hundred and some odd years later, some of these other Greek city-states start to professionalize their soldiers but not quite with that, like, a gogi training, just mm-hmm. making them professional. And the Spartans start to lose some battles. Now, they're still tough, and they still fight hard, and they still win some as well. But it's kind of proven that you don't need a seven-year-old's military training to start, you know, start at that right. time okay. and beat them and, and, and everything like that because mm-hmm. Spartan military prowess is defeated by professional soldiers who don't go through that same agogi process. Right. Okay. And the kind of Spartan myth is broken multiple times by certain certain armies. What about the Spartan women? Do they really um, are they really stronger than all other women, and they are the only ones that give birth? To that's a, that's a real Spartan line too. She actually said that. Really... Yeah, so not to the Persian messenger. She says it to like an Athenian or something like that in real okay. life. But she, that that queen actually says that line to okay. a real person that only Spartan women give birth to Pretty real cool. men, and that's one of the reasons why the women get more rights, you know, than mm-hmm. than some of the other. They're respected in that way. They're respected because hey. Our Spartan warriors come from these Spartan women, so we give them a few more rights and mm-hmm. a few more respect than the other Greek Greek sea states. So another great one-liner from <laughs> you know from a Greek from the Greek queen. Another little thing that's not mentioned in the movie that's just kind of an interesting tidbit is that Sparta has two kings at all times. So there's another Spartan king in power when Leonidas goes off okay. to war, and there's these two kind of historical lines that they both derive themselves from Hercules and these other kind of, you know, the the age of heroes and mythical Greece and, and you know, Perseus and all of that. And so they each kind of claim lineage from a different hero. Mm-hmm. And Leonidas's lineage was seen as the superior line of kings okay. dur- during that time. And that's why he's kind of the one in charge, even though, yes, there, there, is, a, there is another king. Yeah. Um, another bit of... Um the cinematography that I quite liked was that scene with the oracle where she was like floating around and it was clear that she, it, would, it was done underwater yeah but, they, um, yeah they filmed it underwater but I've not seen I don't think I've seen that before no I mean the, movie. the movie's beautiful and yeah. ma- I mean especially like the landscape shots when they're walking through the wheat and and things like that I, I think the movie's mm-hmm. beautifully done it's just got a lot of the little tiny things that are historically you know historically mm-hmm. inaccurate Anything else you want to talk about? Anything else that 
that stood out to you about the movie or history in general or just just anything like that? Oh, I have I have something. So when we talked about the Persian army marching over land, I meant to talk about this earlier, but I kind of forgot, but it's super cool. It's a super cool thing that the Persian army does and the capabilities of this large empire. I talked about in the Ionian Revolt episode about the capabilities that it's almost modern in terms of what they're able to do and how far they're able to march and how many reinforcements and armies they can put into the field after, you know, they lost this battle, another army, mm -hmm. lose this battle, another army, mm -hmm. this fleet gets sunk, another fleet. You know, like it's, mm -hmm. it's extremely impressive. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Spartans and the Greeks would not be able to do to Persia what Persia is doing to Greece. They do not have the ability to send an army and conquer, conquer Persia. I mean, they could go over there and later on they do, but they don't do anything. They get, right. they get defeated. And so when, Xerxes is preparing to march his army to Athens or into just Greece proper in general. He's learned from the first two invasions, right? The first invasion that Greek or the Persian fleet gets sunk around that mm -hmm. Mount Athos because the, the waters storms. are so treacherous mm -hmm. and the storms over there. And they, they go, instead of having to go the long way around up to kind of modern day Istanbul and mm -hmm. cross there, they're going to cross at the Hellespont, which is that little strip yes, of land yes. that I showed you. Yeah. They build two bridges across that water where the army can march across and horses. They, they take these boats and they basically make a pontoon bridge across the Hellespont, mm -hmm. put dirt and wood all over the bridge and, and make a bridge and then cross it. So they cut off this whole area that they have to march around. So then the army's marching around the coastline and the navy is kind of paralleling them for supplies and things like that. Well, when they get to the Mount Athos area, instead of going around and risking all of his ships again, they dig a canal and cut off Mount Athos from the rest of Greece so they can sail their ships through it and just bypass all of that yeah, treacherous. Okay. And for a long, long time, they thought that that was made up. They didn't think that the Persians had the ability to dig canals like that, okay. especially on camp. But they had an awful lot of slaves, didn't they? Yes, they had slaves too. Mm -hmm. But they just said they didn't have the like, technology or the ability to do that on campaign. They okay. could they they could do those types of things like back home, but when the military's on campaign, right, they okay. But an archaeological team went there and found the the evidence of the canal that they actually had dug, and there's still some of it that you can see where it kind of enters and exits on both mm -hmm. sides of the little peninsula. So they actually did that, and they sailed down through. It's it's super impressive. It's really really cool that the Persian army is able to do these yes. these great feats, you know. And we we talked about it in the Ionian Revolt how like from our mindset, the Western mindset, the Greeks are always the good guys. And in some ways, I still, no matter what, will always view the Spartans and the Greeks as the good guys because they're defending their homeland. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be conquered. That's something I think that we can all respect. Mm -hmm. But the Persians are always seen as these enslavers and these tyrannical rulers and the evil empire. You know, the the Darth Vader mm -hmm. and the you know the Hitler of the ancient world. Mm -hmm. But the Persians are always kind of seen as the lenient rulers, the gracious rulers, mm -hmm. and you'll see later on that there's Athenian rulers and Spartan rulers that get exiled or kicked out for various reasons in the in the Greek city-states. They all flee to Persia, and the Persians are like, yeah, come on, you'll be a general in my army, oh, and really? I'll give they you... They don't just enslave them. No, they don't enslave them. They okay. all, and they all live these great lives... In, in Persia, after they get kicked out of the Greek city states because the you know 
Themistocles, the Athenian general who does the naval battles during this time, mm -hmm. he's like a hero of Athens and, and helps, you know, he kind of came up with this overall strategy and things like that. The uh, ruling elites in Athens begin to not like him. And they trump up some charges, false charges, and they like exile him out of Athens. So the guy who helps save Greece gets kicked out of it, goes to Persia. The Persian king's like, yeah, come on, I'll, I'll make you a ruler of this county or I'll give you this city to, to be a governor of and I'll make you rich. And he's like, all right, cool. And, and <laughs> goes and lives off this great life in, in Persia afterwards. Wow. The, you know, so yeah, it's just kind of funny and just a little bit more context on you know they're not just these kind of faceless yes. monsters they they did have culture and they did have good and bad things about them you know that that kind of a thing but although they get a lot wrong in the movie i, I still enjoy 300 it's it's one of the first of its kind it was so big when it came out so i don't you know i still enjoy watching it even though they get a lot of the a lot of the little little things wrong anything anything else I think so. Yeah. Covered lots. Yeah. I think that's going to cover it for this episode of the Based on History podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify. Leave a review. Tell all your friends about it. Tell everyone about it. We really appreciate mm -hmm. everyone who already has and who's been spreading the word. Follow us on Instagram. Let us know if you know what a lizard, why it was called a lizard head. Yeah. Oh, and also let me know if there's <laughs> anything I got wrong. You know, we'll talk about the uh, things I got wrong in the, on the 300 episode in the next one. And we hope everyone's doing well, and we'll see you next time on the Based on History podcast. Adios.